0: Well, many of you will know that growing up, I played ice hockey. And for um, 10 of those 12 years, I was a goaltender. So I spent precious little time in the penalty box. Um, But growing up playing hockey, that was a joke. Uh, I'm in a penalty box. Anyway, uh, growing up, I not only played hockey, I loved to watch hockey. I loved to watch Olympic hockey. Uh, Set your minds on uh, Olympic sports just in general, both summer and winter. Right, there's an event, there is a a competition, someone wins the event in summer, you know, somebody swims a race, they reach the wall. Everybody knows that they're the victor, that they've won the gold. And yet, there's a lag time, isn't there? There's a lag time between when they win and when they receive that medal, that crown, so to speak, that marks them out as the ultimate victor and winner. Christians... We live in an age that's much like that, the time between the victory and the medal ceremony. We already possess salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and still we do not possess the glories of it in full. One of the challenges of the Christian life is to live in this tension. We find ourselves in this tension every day, to live as those who have overcome the world, but who have not yet been delivered out of this world to the next. The psalm that we're looking at together this morning is full of the assurance and victory that God's people from the moment they have hid themselves in Christ, from the moment they've placed their faith in Christ to the moment they receive that final medal, that crown of life that can never be taken away. This psalm is full of assurances and encouragements and comforts. This psalm, Psalm 91, reminds us of where we are and of where we're going. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 91. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 497. In some ways, Psalm 91, when you, when you get there, you'll see that it comes, of course, uh, after Psalm 90, which is a prayer of Moses. And Psalm 91 is in some ways an exposition of Moses' prayer, particularly Moses' confession that God is a refuge and fortress to his people Throughout all generations. And the the structure of the psalm is really quite simple. In verses 1 and 2 we see the the author's uh, personal confession of faith. That God is his refuge. And that's really the the main idea of the whole psalm. To take refuge in God. So the author first proclaims himself, take refuge in God there in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 and Through 13, there are are various exhortations and encouragements to take refuge in God because God protects His people in a variety of ways. And then, in verses 14 to 16, we see and receive God's word of assurance that He will comfort His people. God says that He will be a refuge to His people. So, here's, here's the outline for the rest of the sermon. Just three simple points. A proclamation of faith a promise of protection, and a pledge of favor. Let's begin with our first point, a proclamation of faith. And as we do, let's just take a look at verses 1 and 2. Read Psalm ninety-two verses 1 and 2, Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. Let me read those to us now. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Well, these two verses, they set the trajectory for the rest of the psalm. We see that they focus in on God and personal faith in Him. That the psalmist is showing us how he has taken refuge. Picking up on language, that's, as I said, similar to Psalm 90. The psalmist reminds himself and his believing readers that there's safety in God. You see that there in verse 1. God provides shelter. He's a sanctuary from trouble. God provides shade. You can hide under the shadow of Of his wings people can find relief from the oppressive heat this is undoubtedly a a metaphor for some form of trouble and these metaphors they continue on there in the the second verse with these images of a refuge and a fortress these images of course they they imply danger and conflict and battle don't they these metaphors and images they're reaching for something for something real they're touching on something and that it is that God is a place of safety for his people. And and we get a sense of how and why God can be a place of safety for his people, really in the names that the psalmist uses to describe God. He calls God the Most High, the Almighty, and the Lord Yahweh. The first time that title, the Most High, was used was back in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek, that enigmatic high priest of Salem, or Jerusalem said that he was a priest of God Most High. And Abraham himself confessed that he was a follower of God Most High. If you flip over just a few psalms to Psalm 97, verse 9, you can get a, a greater sense of what this means. Psalm 97, verse 9 says this, For you, O Lord Yahweh, are Most High over all the earth. You are exalted, exalted far above all gods. So God, He possesses the highest throne. He's above all creation. He's above all gods, above all rulers and principalities in the heavenly realms as Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 tells us. But the most high God, he is also the almighty God. He's the one who reigns on high and has the power to rule and to reign over his creation and he has the power to keep his people safe, which is important, right? For a psalmist who's saying, God is my refuge and strength. Well, does he have the power to do it? He most certainly does because of Who he is. He is the almighty God. But this power to rule over the whole universe is further stressed and really guaranteed in that title, the Lord, Lord Yahweh. That title, L-O-R-D, in all caps and scriptures, right, is a basic translation of Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It stresses his great kingship over his people and his authority. So even in these titles, just in the first two verses, we see that God, he has the highest throne. He has power and authority to rule from that throne. Because of all this and more, God's people can and should flee to him for safety. And then in verse 2, the the psalmist, he even shows us how. how. How do you come to God for safety? You see there with his personal confession? I will say to the Lord Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You see how personal this is. He claims God is his God. He trusts God. He not only rests his strength, he doesn't rest in his own strength, but he trusts in the strength, the love, the care, the protection of God, his God. The Lord is his God. and Really, he's he's quite happy for the whole world to know it. But what does this say to us? Well, certainly, these two verses teach us that we need to recognize who God is and so abide in him. We ought to follow the psalmist's example and dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. And all of this this language of abiding or dwelling is it's the language of faith. It's decisive. And yet It's present and active and continually carrying on. So we are to decisively put our faith in God once and for all to receive and rest upon Christ Jesus alone as he's offered to us in the gospel for our salvation and deliverance and protection. But we are also to keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep abiding in him until he calls us home. Just as this was personal for the psalmist, so this is personal for us. Note, this is personal but it's not private. Right? The psalmist has inscribed his faith for us here in the scriptures that we can see. And the same is true for us too. Our, our faith ought to be personal. We personally trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, our faith ought also to be public. Declaring, perhaps in the words of James Montgomery's wonderful hymn, Call Jehovah thy salvation. Rest beneath the Almighty's shade. In his secret habitation dwell and never be dismayed. Remember that this protection is for those who trust and believe in God, who hide themselves in God. Is this you? Is he your dwelling place? Is he your shelter and your refuge, your fortress, the one in whom you trust? Well, having considered the psalmist's protection of faith, let's turn now and consider our second point. A promise of protection. A promise of protection. As we do, let's read verses 3 to 13. 3 to 13, the psalmist writes, For He, that's God, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday, A 1,000 may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord Yahweh your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion, the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Well, in these verses, the psalmist is calling the people of Israel to keep trusting in God. And he, he lists a number of ways that God will deliver them from harm. You see there in verse 3, he promises, he promises deliverance from the snare of the fowler. That's a person who uh, hunts birds, who tr- sets traps and seeks to catch them. But then there we also see there's deliverance from pestilence. That's deadly disease, an epidemic that sweeps through. That's also promised in verse 3. And that mention of pestilence is the reason that I chose this psalm for this Sunday. Have we been taking refuge in God in the midst of this pestilence? Side by side, this uh, snare of the fowler and this pestilence, they show us... That God's protection point to a kind of individual and corporate deliverance. Traps are usually set to catch one. But a deadly epidemic will often sweep across many. And then there's this reassurance there in verse 4. Do you see it? God will cover, his, cover the believer with his pinions. So if I have my ornithological parts correct, um, that's the, the outer part of a bird's wing. That's why the psalmist goes on to say that under God's wings you will find refuge. And the point, of course, is to emphasize that God is able to protect us from danger. He does so without fail. The Lord's iron wings are our shield. We know what a shield is, but a buckler is less commonly known. It's kind of like a shield on the forearm worn by a warrior. And these images, of course, they're meant to point us to God, not so much to themselves. Right? You see the, the end of verse 4, how verse 4 ends? The psalmist, he uses these images to point us to God. He says, His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Because the point is, is He wants us to take refuge in our God. These images, the Lord Jesus, He picked up. Do you, do you remember that in Jesus' ministry? If you can, you can keep a finger here and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. This is near the, the end of the, the Lord Jesus ministry just before his cross. He's been preaching and teaching in Jerusalem. and Jesus uses these images here in Psalm 91. He has just proclaimed woes over the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he distraughtly utters these words, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets." And stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? You see how Jesus is picking up on this bird imagery and he's calling the people of God to, to come to him. The people of Jerusalem did not place their faith in the Lord Jesus, and so they were open to harm. They did not come to the Lord Jesus and shelter under his wings. Just consider how ready the Savior is to protect the weak, to receive the wicked. And this psalm calls out to us and says to us, Our God is willing, come. So come. The Lord Jesus says, Come. Why will you not come to him? Why will you not run to him? He is eager and willing to protect the weak and the wicked to save them, and to deliver them, and to hold them close to his heart. Well, turning back to Psalm 91, verses 5 and 8, one of the ways that we need to recognize that the writers of Hebrew poetry make a point or stress a point is that they look at the same issue from different angles. And that's what ha- what's happening in verses 5 through 8. The psalmist is piling up on top of the point that he made there in verses 3 and 4. He's stressing God's faithfulness in protecting his people. In verses 5 and 6, the psalmist says that God protects his people in the night and in the day. That's what he means by noonday, right? That's, that's broad daylight. So you see what he's saying? It, it doesn't matter when danger rears its head. The Lord is there to protect you. He's faithful. It also doesn't matter what kind of danger rears its head. The Lord is there to protect you. He's faithful to his people it doesn't matter how fierce or how many or how forceful the danger is the Lord will protect you you see verse 7 it depicts the scene of kind of a a lone survivor there's no one else around 10,000 have fallen but you remain because God is faithful the psalmist even says there in verse 8 that you'll see this with your eyes you'll see God's justice carried out against the wicked who battle against you You'll see them lose and be repaid for their evil. Which, of course, implies that the believer will not be repaid for evil. You will not fall and face the punishment due to your sin. Why? Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us there. Because you have made the Lord Yahweh your dwelling place, the Most High, who's my refuge. It's like the psalmist cannot stop. Each time he speaks of God being a refuge, He he kind of inserts himself in there. Do you see that? I've got to say this too. He's also mine. He's yours, but he's he's mine too. How eager he is to confess his faith in God. He's my refuge. And he says, no evil shall befall you, be allowed to befall you, and no plague come near your tent. Well, can we really apply these verses to our lives? The, The divine protection that's promised here by the psalmist is almost unqualified, right? In verse 10, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. So can we really say, I'm not going to get the pestilence that is COVID-19 because I trust in God? Can we say that? Here's the short answer. No. The psalmist is, is not an early prosperity gospel preacher. He's not a preacher who says that God is for your health and your wealth. And if you've just got enough faith, nothing bad is going to happen to you. I don't think that's what the psalm is saying. So, so how should we read this psalm? How do we apply these verses to our hearts and lives? Well, we should certainly read this psalm as poetry. Poetry uses images and metaphors and extravagant language to communicate a truth. And because it's poetry, we can't read it in a wooden manner. We, of course, know our own experiences and the Bible's teaching. that Christians will suffer Sadly, we know Christians who will die of cancer and heart disease, other diseases, of perhaps of COVID-19. We know Christians who have died in battle, Christians who may die in battle. We know Christians who have been attacked by evil forces. So how do we understand these promises? What this psalm is promising is protection for believers from the punishment and wrath of God. What this psalm is promising is protection for believers from the punishment and wrath of God. And there are signals, clues, internal and external. There are signals inside the psalm that this is the case. So you see there in verse 8, he's, he's just made in, uh, a statement there in verse 7 that you'll be protected in the course of battle, stressing divine protection. But then in verse 8, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. So these, these disasters, these threats from without and within, these are not general disasters, but divine retributions of God on the wicked. The death of the unbeliever is the down payment on God's divine justice. It's just the down payment. The death of the unbeliever is down payment of divine justice. And this should give us a sense of urgency, For sharing the gospel with our lost friends and family and co-workers. We ought to love them, be very concerned for their souls, and urge them to take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 91, it describes a world that's filled with pestilence and disease and war and death. And it is out of that context of danger that God is delivering and saving His people. Though a believer may experience death and disease, they are not the down payment of God's eternal judgment. Because faith, dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, is what staves off God's eternal punishment. In the words of Richard Sibbs, For the Christian, death is only the grim porter who leads us into a stately palace. See, our experience of death as believers is different than unbelievers. This psalm is not a prosperity gospel psalm. It's not promising the people of God total protection from disease, from the bubonic plague or pneumonic plague or other deadly diseases like COVID-19, God is promising His people that they will be sheltered from His wrath as He punishes the wicked through various forms. See, God is saving Israel. He's delivering the faithful from His wrath in the midst of the fallen world, a world marked by evil and wickedness and sin. Generally speaking, in, in the Old Covenant, the promises of God uh, typically relate to more material items. And generally speaking, in the New Covenant, the promises of God are generally articulated in more spiritual forms. But let's remember the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Paul writes great words of comfort for us in that chapter. In Romans 8, verse 35, Paul writes, "...who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ?" Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he says in verse 37, no, in, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, it's in the midst of these dangers that we are more than conquerors. God is delivering his people, saving them from this world. And while they are in this world that's marked by disease and pestilence and war, God is at work in the hearts of believers. Christians, believers are sometimes afflicted with some of these things, but they never experience them as an act of God's recompense, as verse 8 says, or they don't experience them as the down payment of divine justice. If believers experience any of these things in this life, we know that God must be working some good through it. Again, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. In the very least, we know that God is either making a believer in the Lord Jesus more like the Lord Jesus, or he's bringing him home to heaven. If a believer endures these things... He said they're making him more like the Lord Jesus in the midst of these trials or bringing him home to heaven. But believers never experience disease or war as God's punishment, repaying them for their sins, for they've been paid in Christ and in whole. We don't receive that payment because we have made the Lord our dwelling place. That's the takeaway. Take refuge in God. In verses 11 and 13, the psalm not only encourages the believer with a promise that there's, God's, there's protection from God's wrath, but it also encourages the believer to know that there's a, another aspect of God's protection in this life. Take a look at verses uh, 11, and, 11 to 13 again of Psalm 91. The psalmist writes, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So all, these are all these in, encouragements. These are inducements that we're finding in this psalm to take refuge in God. And he adds this one angelic protection from the evil one. Right, to these, uh, these images of the lion and serpent, they remind you of Satan. They should. Right. First Peter, chapter 5, verse 8, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the devil is like a lion, according to Peter, according to the psalmist too. And Satan, the devil, is also like a, a snake, a, a serpent. We see that in Genesis chapter 3 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and in other places too. Not only does dwelling in and trusting in the Lord protect the believer from God's just punishment of sin. But he also protects the faithful from being bitten by the serpent, Satan. Even more than that, there's a kind of victory over the evil one, isn't there? We knew that it was promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that the offspring, the seed, would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus did that, didn't he? Right? Psalm 91 is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we read them earlier but let's read them again for our edification Matthew chapter 4 verses 5 to 7 Satan is tempting the Lord Jesus in the wilderness and keep Psalm 91 in your minds because Satan quotes it the devil took him verse 5 chapter 4 the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him if you are the son of God throw yourself down for it is written here comes a quote from Psalm 91 he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you can see, Satan is quoting Psalm 91. He's taken a promise from God and he's encouraged Jesus to demand that God make good on that promise. But the promises of Psalm 91 And this teaches us how to read them too, right? The promises of Psalm 91 do not give Jesus or us the liberty to cast ourselves into a crisis, thereby testing God. So Psalm 91 doesn't allow us to say, you know, let me just step into this particularly prickly situation that's dangerous. You know, God's promised that uh, he'll deliver me. So let me get myself jammed up and see if God can deliver me. Well, that's a misreading of Scripture. It's satanic to test God, as we see here. And if anyone knew the promises of Psalm 91 and how they were to be read, it was the Lord Jesus. And he knew that Satan was deliberately misreading, misinterpreting Scripture. But the enemy could not touch him with his arrows or tempt him to sin. The Lord Jesus refused to right and then there's the joy of verse 11 of Matthew chapter 4 then the devil left him and behold the angels came and were ministering to him jesus had victory over satan and the devil left him and as one scholar put it the angelic help of psalm 91:11 which jesus refused to call illegitimately is now appropriately given go back to psalm 91 you see there verse 13 Satan, he quoted verses 11 and 12, but he stopped before verse 13. And that's because it had terrible news for him. But it has good news for us. Verse 13, you will, note the certainty, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Well, Jesus, he was victorious in the wilderness. He tread on the lion and the adder, and ultimately in his resurrection of the grave, he crushed the head of the serpent. And the promises of protection and victory in this psalm, they're ours through the Lord Jesus Christ and through our faith union with Him. We have the power to resist Satan today because God the Holy Spirit has imparted Christ to us. And we're resting in Him and drawing upon Him strength that we need. When we are tempted by that old serpent, we need to dwell on Christ's victory over Satan in the wilderness and in the resurrection we need to ask and plead with God to help us resist the devil and cause him to flee from us James chapter 4 verse 7 but our victory as we know our victory is already and not yet because we have been united to Christ by faith we share in his victory over the devil and yet because we still struggle with sin and are still tempted by that old serpent we do not yet have the final victory over him we're promised, though, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. He will, because we walk in Jesus' footsteps as his disciples. And the victory that Jesus had, we have in him. And we'll have one day in full. Here are the promises of protection. God will protect his people from his wrath. As we hide ourselves in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. And God will protect His people from Him, His enemies. So what should we do? Well, we should take refuge in Him. In the final verses of this psalm, we hear the pledge of God's favor. Which assures us that the outcome is secure. Because He guarantees it. So here we hear the pledge of God's favor. Read Psalm 91 verses 14 to 16. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And just zoom back out to look at the whole psalm again for a moment. The structure of the psalm can be seen in the transitions of pronouns. In the first section, the psalmist speaks about himself. In the second section, the psalmist was mainly speaking about the one who faithfully dwells and takes refuge in the shadow of the Almighty. And now in this third section, it's God speaking. God is speaking and God pronounces or pledges His favor to the faithful. All that the psalmist promised in the first and second section is personally reaffirmed by God here. And we should be personally comforted by God's pledges in these verses. They're sweeping, right? God promises deliverance and protection that he would hear and answer. That he would be with us in trouble and rescue us. He he makes all of these promises with great certainty. Do you see? Over six times he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is God's pledge to us. He is trying to persuade us to take refuge in Him. Oh, how He loves you and me and wants us to come to Him and shelter in Him. And you see the danger that we face. We see words like deliver and protect and trouble and rescue and salvation in these verses. We need these things. We receive this pledge of favor, these promises through Jesus Christ. And notice there's a description of an intimate relationship with God. In these verses, right? The faithful believer holds fast to God. You see that in verse 14? Because he holds fast to me in love. And notice what God does too. God holds fast to the believer. That language of holding fast is meant to describe um, setting your love upon God. But think of these words too as God the Father speaking them concerning His Son. Can't you hear the Father saying these words to the Lord Jesus? As Jesus fulfills all righteousness in His life and death and resurrection, the Father says of His Son in verse 14, Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him, because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. And with long life, I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. Long life and salvation. Do you see there? They're they're held in parallel. They're meant to describe one another. God's pledge of favor is his reward of eternal life and glory. This is a pledge to Christ, but this is also a pledge to us as we hide ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is, in fact, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Romans 8 1 says. There is eternal security found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we need in a day of temporal insecurity. That is what we have, isn't it? Each day is filled with danger. And yet, we are held safe in God's arms and under His wings. As we hide ourselves in Christ, there's eternal security in a world of temporal insecurity. There's no need to fear God's judgment for all there is in Christ is blessing and favor for the believer. So friend, if you're, if you're here today and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to exhort you to make your life a fulfillment of Psalm 91 verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love. Friend, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't embraced God, if you haven't held fast to him in love, I want to urge you now to hold fast to the Lord Jesus in love. The Lord Jesus has done something that none of us have ever done. And that's lived a life that's perfectly free from sin. Jesus has never sinned and he's never placed himself in the way of God's uh, danger due to sin. Because he's perfectly righteous. He knew no sin and yet in love for his people He laid his life down. He died on the cross, taking the punishment and the judgment and the wrath of God due to our sin against him. Jesus took that upon himself and he bore it. He was cursed on the cross and he died in the place of sinners like us. But the Lord God satisfied him with long life. He delivered him from the grave. God the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the dead three days after his death and he vindicated him. And now Jesus still stands and calls us to come to Him in faith. Jesus says, come, you who are weary and heavy laden. You who are wicked and lost. Come. Let not conscience make you linger. Come, you sinner. The Lord Jesus is delighted to save. He calls you to trust in Him. To give your whole life to Him. And to hold fast to Him as your only hope in life and in death. So come to the Lord Jesus Christ and hold fast to Him in love. And Christian, you should keep holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ in love. And when we consider the love with which He first loved us, our grip on Christ will be strengthened. In verse 14, we're reminded we should know the name of our God. We should know that He is the Most High God and the Almighty. So we thought about in verse 1. We should know that He is our Lord, our Yahweh, and our Ruler. We should know that He's our loving Heavenly Father who's made provision for us in Jesus Christ. Verse 15 tells us that we should call out to Him in trouble. Christian, don't go through a single day without calling out to your Heavenly Father. He is there to answer you. We also need to live with the knowledge of His gracious presence. Verse 15 tells us that He is with us in trouble. This is the promise that Jesus left His disciples with, that He would be with them always, even to the very end of the age. Christian, you are never alone because God won't leave you alone. He loves you too much to leave you alone. Finally, verse 16 teaches us that we need to live as those who are satisfied with the riches and glories of of heaven William Gurnall once said that nothing is more contrary to a heavenly hope than an earthly heart perhaps perhaps what this pestilence may have been showing us through our fear of death is that there may still be a lot of earth in our hearts but Jesus Christ he really is better than all his love really is better than life And when faith gives way to sight, we know that we will see more fully what God said to us there in verse 16, that He would show us our salvation. In heavenly glory, the promises of Psalm 91 will reach their ultimate goal. Heavenly glory is the the medal ceremony, so to speak. And what do we receive? Well, Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 tells us that we will see Him face to face. There's no Better reward than to see the God who loves his people and calls them to come to him and take refuge in him. So, Christian, as you wait to see him, proclaim your faith to God and to others. Entrust yourself to his eternal protection and remember his pledge of favor toward you in Jesus Christ. This is his promise to you I will deliver you, I will protect you, I will answer you, I will be with you. I will rescue you and I will satisfy you. Christian, he holds fast to you in love. So hold fast to him. And let us pray that God would give us the grace to do that now.